You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Welcome to Afternoon Cyber Tea with Ann Johnson, where we speak with some of the biggest security influencers in the industry about what is shaping the cyber landscape and what should be top of mind for the C-suite and other key security decision makers. I'm Ann Johnson, and today we're going to talk about cybersecurity through the lens of international conflict. I'm joined by Tara Wheeler, who is a cybersecurity researcher and political scientist who currently holds cybersecurity fellowships while also leading a new international cybersecurity capacity building project with the Hewlett Foundation Cyber Initiative. She's also a prominent speaker and author of the bestseller, Women in Tech, Take Your Career to the Next Level with Practical Advice and Inspiring Stories. Tara, welcome and thank you for joining me. Thank you so much, Anne. It's a pleasure to get a chance to talk with you again, and uh, I'm looking forward to it. Well, I've got plenty of tea to lubricate me. Go for it. Earl Grey lavender today. Let's rock. Excellent. <laughs> I'm, I'm drinking licorice tea this morning. Oh, I love that. Yeah, it's it's really quite good. It's a good way to start your day, too. So, you know, cyber threats seem to penetrate every aspect of society. I know even this morning I received a breach notification from a uh, a, an animal um, foundation that I that I give money to, which is really interesting. Um, but it, it seems also that through coronavirus, it's amplified, you know, anxieties people have around vulnerabilities and a global scale. And we have all kinds of other things happening in the world from a from a socioeconomic and from a geopolitical standpoint and, you know, racial injustice in the U.S. It's, it's just been a really, I think, challenging um, period of time that we're living and working in. And your work sits really at the intersection of cybersecurity and foreign policy. And I guess that's where I want to start our conversation. So what drew you to this area of research and how did you get here? Uh, this is a it's a crazy question. I think one of the one of the best ways I've I've ever been able to put it is I'm just a gig worker is maybe the best way that I found myself at this intersection. Um, I started out as a juvenile delinquent who got interested in warfare. <laughs> and, uh, I, I found myself as I sort of uh, pulled myself up by my bootstraps, as it, as it were, uh, for however much that's worth, in, more and more interested in the kinds of topics that let me explore why people do what they do. In both foreign policy and cybersecurity, you find people who have power and anonymity and you can dis you can figure out a lot about human nature from watching people in these two fields and i think watching people and and learning about them has sort of been a core story for me um there's a i get called a lot of things especially on the internet but uh i i think of myself as a social scientist might be the best way to put it that's my academic training i come out of political economy and international conflict and it turns out when you spend a lot of time in international conflict writing uh, warfare simulations and agent-based modeling in Java that you come out of it with some technical skill sets that the technical industry was interested in uh, a while back. I've, I've now gone kind of full circle from studying uh, international conflict all the way through technology and seemingly here in cybersecurity at senior levels, I'm back in international conflict again. So it's the it's been a journey back and forth, kind of ping ponging between these two 
really interesting areas for me, I think. Does it make sense? It does make sense. And I like that. Um, I like that you started, you know, I was a juvenile delinquent and who had an interest in, you know, in the topic, but it, it evolved over time because I don't think um, when I was in juvenile, we were ever talking about cybercrime. Probably different for you, but. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's troublemakers that see the world differently, right? And I, I think that the bouncing back and forth has, has, um, has not only made sure that I and all the other people who bounce between two disciplines that both mean something like the same thing to them stay more mentally flexible that way. You, you, you end up as an expert in neither, but when someone needs a person who knows both, there's no better choice. And I, I'm okay with that. So, you know, when we think about cyber threats and we think about Communication. Um, you've said previously that the right to private and encrypted communication is a fundamental right of humanity. And I'm sure you know Microsoft has a strong stance about communication data privacy, sorting GDPR and the Washington Privacy Act. But how does that fundamental right to privacy stack against the responsibility of governments and organizations to actually keep individuals safe? So I put some thought. I have been putting thought into this question for a long time. And I think one of the challenges that we face um, that encryption experts, especially, and I don't claim to be a cryptographer, but one of the one of the challenges people who engage in policy debates over encryption and the right to privacy experience is that privacy and protection are not fundamentally in conflict with with each other. This isn't a binary decision. You don't get one or the other. What you get are trade-offs between the two that often can end up with better than a zero sum between the two of them. Um, we get both of these things. And when privacy and protection actually very rarely come into conflict with each other, we get to balance them just like we balance all manner of public policy, like between the economy and the environment, uh, the need for people to travel versus the need for the protection of the climate, um, the need for people to have childcare in order to do their best at work, which is certainly something that, that, that an incredible number of people are experiencing right now. These are, these are values, they're rights. And so we can balance them against each other. Um, and so there's not a good example of needing to breach people's privacy uh, um, proactively in order to prevent any immediate threat from occurring. We're only really looking at a situation of decreasing the friction between law enforcement and what they want to see about people's communications. And so the, those things can be balanced, right? We can balance rights. The thing we can't balance is math. And if I could just give an example of the frustration, I think that so many encryption experts feel at this point. Um, Anne, are you, a, are you a Star Trek fan? I forget. Do you like um, Next Gen? Next Gen. Okay, Next Gen. Okay, so Chain of Command, Season 6, Picard and Gol Madred. Uh, you, you've watched this one, right? Uh, the Cardassian Gol General basically is interrogating Picard. You remember yep. this one? Okay. Yep. So, incredible, like Emmy Award winning David Warner was incredible as Gol Madred. All right. So, in that example, which even people who, even in that episode, which even people who haven't watched Star Trek The Next Generation have probably seen as a meme on the internet. Um, there's there's a there are moments between this interrogator and Picard who's being held as a and tortured for information. There are moments between these two people where Golmadred is telling Picard, I just need to know that you'll tell me there are five lights. Points up to, to four lights behind him. 
Picard's continuing insistence that there are four lights is his mental, moral, and emotional victory in, in this episode. Yeah. It's, it is based on 1984. It's based on Winston um, and the fact that his interrogator kept holding up four fingers and saying, tell me there are five. Tell me there are five fingers. And, and what you see in a situation like this between um, two people of unequal power in the situation is you, you've got to remember that in a case like this, we're, we're dealing with, with policymakers who say we can find a compromise. We can find some way to, to, to split this down the middle. You can do that with privacy, with rights. You can't do that with math. And so this is the equivalent of saying, uh, of Gold Madrid saying, fine, if you can't say there are five lights, I'll meet you right down the middle. Tell me there are 4.5 lights. That is what people who want to backdoor encryption are fundamentally saying. And there's no way to meet someone halfway on math and the truth. You can meet them and balance rights, privileges, uh, protections, privacy. You can balance these things with other needs in society. You can't balance the fact that there is or is not four lights that you're yeah. seeing, right? Right, because encryption is math, and you can't. The math can't be half implemented, right? It Correct. it either is implemented or not. It, it's an interesting conversation because there, you know, if you take out all of the, you know, political aspects of it. Let's just, you know, take it down to the fundamental issue of does government have a fundamental need to have an encryption backdoor in devices to get information more quickly? I think what uh, you're saying is there's no proven evidence of that. Not only is there no proven historical evidence of that, um, and and again, I don't have access to the CIA archives, right? That I'm I'm perfectly willing to be proven wrong here, but I haven't been yet. So so bring more, bring more examples to me. Uh, but when I look at at this, I see this continuing um, request, sort of to set encryption experts up as the bad guys or as the 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 people unwilling to compromise. When it's not that there's that there's a compromise to be had, and that we're not willing to make it. It's not that we're not willing if there's an ability to, to balance things like privacy and protection. It's not that we won't compromise. It's it's not that the question has yet to be answered. It's that we answered the question 25 years ago and we're bored of saying the same thing about two plus two. There's, there's no other answer to give is the challenge that we have. It's not intransigence, it's physics. Yeah, and I think I think that's a logical and practical way to look at it. Um, so, if you think about if you think about cybersecurity's impact on the world, right, and privacy and compliance and all of those topics, um, what do you think about what the next, you know, not even next? What are the attitudes? And 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 I know your area is your area of research, you know, is quite specific, but. I do believe because you've been in the industry, you have a frame of reference about the attitudes, both from a corporate standpoint and even from a consumer standpoint, and then talking about a governmental standpoint. Have the attitudes changed towards cybersecurity in your view in the past two to three years? This is it's a hard question. Uh, what I've seen is a, an, a, a reluctant and frustrated shift into acknowledging that cybersecurity probably belongs in the realm of the legal and HR departments inside most companies as a thing you can't get rid of and is a cost center. 
is, is maybe the best way that I've put it. We have we've, the fundamental change there has been an acknowledgement that cybersecurity is as necessary to the running of a business as keeping the lights on, as keeping people happy and trained, as keeping the company legally protected, keeping the company uh, the, the company's digital assets safe has become as necessary as those kind of fundamental practices in modern business. That's the biggest shift I've seen. And that reluctance isn't always because of attitude. It's it's often most of all just because it's difficult to demonstrate the incentives for a cost center internally. When you operate cybersecurity internally a little bit more like a PL uh, with um, balancing risk management and the demonstration of probabilistic reduction of risk and the amount of money you saved the company, all of a sudden you can frame that entirely differently. You could frame it as risk management and Honestly, some of the most successful cybersecurity internal departments I've ever seen have reported up to risk or finance, not not to technology, which is kind of fascinating to me because it, it says that we're we're describing cybersecurity as one of the pillars of supporting a business, not something you bolt on from the side and not something that you engage in because you are cleaning up after the fact. And when I see attitudes internationally, it's uh, the, the biggest corporate impact of international cybersecurity has been international regulatory regimes like GDPR, honestly. That's that wake up call in terms of the way the U.S. conducted its affairs in corporate in corporations. Like, it, don't tell me and, you know, remember, you know, May 25th, 2018, that's when GDPR came into into yep. uh, full effect. Right. Everybody was just the, the whole the whole company, every company I could see. Everyone was walking around with their heads in their hands going, I didn't think they actually make us do it. <laughs> it's, it's pretty fascinating to see. Um, and that one, that one was the big one because GDPR mandated hooks for personal privacy, for data deletion that most companies had not only never thought to put into place before, but in some cases were relying on as part of their business model. So that's, uh, that's, that's kind of how I think the biggest impact of international cybersecurity has landed in the corporate world over the last couple of years. I hope that makes sense. No, it does make sense. And I, I've always said and continue to say cybersecurity is a risk decision. It's fundamentally a risk decision. You could have perfect security and never do business, right? Mm -hmm. um, so you have to determine what your risk appetite is, where your critical assets are, et cetera. And I think that I think that's a maturing of the industry that we're seeing more and more cyber um, cyber organizations report outside of IT because it's less about tooling. The tooling is important but it's more about um, process, people, and risk. And then you apply the tooling to support that. I've actually, I was having this incredible, the last time I was allowed out of my house, <laughs> I was at RSA this year, uh, and I was doing a talk, I think it was the the uh, executive CISO forum with uh, Phil Venables, who's the CISO at Goldman Sachs. Yep. And we're having this kind of great conversation on stage talking to senior professionals and, and one of the things that I, as without any doubt, a much more junior member of the cybersecurity industry than than Phil, I think I said I opened my mouth sort of quakingly to give my opinion. He's like, absolutely, this we got to have this conversation. The CISO, the security role inside companies, is splitting dramatically into two different things, uh, and we've often and you have to define what you want out of security before you start hiring for it because there is sort of the the mid uh, product executive level security role where your job is to check on the technical implementations 
of product, of internal security. Um, you're, you need to be the, the most technical person in the company, basically, in terms of security. And, that, and your role there is evaluating the technical elements in security. And then there's another role that starts to, it, it, it's five levels up because it often reports to the board. And that is a role about risk management. It's one that is operational and strategic. And it's one that a lot of technical individual contributors in cybersecurity would rather tear their hair out than engage with, which is trying to explain in small words of two syllables or less why investing you know, $120,000 into a given vendor product is going to save the company probabilistically $5 million over three quarters. And that explanation, that, that job is the one we're seeing a fundamental split in from the, the CISO function, I think. And, and uh, I think people who start out technical often don't make that transition to explaining cybersecurity and why it matters and what about it is involved with operations and risk management. Um, and we need to see more of that. I, I genuinely think because only people who started as an engineer and then had sort of this mind blowing moment where they were like, are you telling me that it's not just we spend money on this? It actually saves the company money, too. And that moment often is the moment people start communicating well about security. I, I Yeah. And I think that makes perfect sense. You know, I want to go I want to dig into another topic for a moment, um, completely different. You know, you're a Fulbright scholar in cybersecurity. You have multiple fellowships. You've done extensive research. And you and I both spend a fair amount of time on social media. And I won't call out the social media site, but I watch as my female peers in the industry. And um, you're always of particular interest to me because you're so well qualified, but you get attacked by people who question your qualifications, who claim you've never done anything. How do you respond to that how do you i've seen your responses on 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 social media but how do you actually internalize that or not internalize it and the reason i'm asking is to give a roadmap for other women who who come under attack and get gaslit um by folks for not being you know who they who they are Yeah, I know. I, 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 I know I, know. I pushed a big button there. And I'm just doing it to try to help other women who are in the same situation. Yeah. I see you are a very strong woman and you defend yourself. And But other people get really um, disenchanted and just leave the industry or leave social media. So it's more of a roadmap for folks. So the number one, this is going to shock you. I know I look like I follow you on Twitter and uh, follow you on Twitter. I don't follow almost anybody on Twitter. You know what I follow? I follow like an aquarium that generates little fish images. Um, <laughs> I follow digital humanities scholarship from like 200 years ago and like palimpsest texts and and medieval manuscript illumination. I, the people that I, I, I very rarely read the doom scrolling about the latest infosec situation. And that helps a little bit. Um, I, tu- I, I, I deliberately tune into the things that I want and need to listen to, and I deliberately tune out from the rest of it, or I'll get caught up in what's happening. Um, how to put this? Um, I've never, um, I, I, I have let it get to me. I've let it get to me repeatedly. Um, and the the answer that I probably have is for every woman, every person of color out there who thinks that you're not enough, that feeling is never going to go away. It will never leave you. You will always have imposter syndrome. You will have Fulbrights and Nobel Prizes and be the governor of the colony ship to Mars and you will be convinced that somebody made a mistake somewhere because you are told that every day. It's not your fault that you're told that every day. And as a result, there's not a fix for it. 
there is only compensatory measures, only um, only uh, coping mechanisms. That's it. I'm in the middle right now of writing a book proposal, and the list of credentials I've got is is pretty decent for the kind of work I do in cyber warfare and uh, civilian impacts and cyber war crimes. And yet I know I am going to be shredded for my lack of credentials, lack of ability to do anything about this. Someone's going to find something I haven't done yet and use that as a reason to not listen to me or not take my point of view into account. Um, And that is the thing that stops so many women and people of color from expressing a viewpoint from being present in the moment and saying the thing that they need to say. Um, And it stops them for a reason. You are right to be scared. You're right that it's going to hurt. You're right that you're going to internalize it. And only an individual person can make the decision if it's worth it for them. I still don't know if it's worth it for me. But the compensation is that I get to think about things and tell people about them every day. And I don't have a I don't want to do anything else with my life, and I'd rather pay the price than be fake or not me or not think about the things that I want to have in my head to help the world. So what are you working on right now? Can you bring us up to speed on your work now? Uh, The biggest topic that I'm working on is the idea that civilian impacts in cyber warfare are – they're going unnoticed. it, honestly, this is this is crazy. I'm just going to talk to you like I'm talking to a therapist right now. It was only yesterday morning that I kind of had this realization, uh, and it goes to that that question, that conversation about whether or not I feel like I'm enough, I've done enough, I've covered enough ground, I have enough crap on my resume. Um, one of the things that I see kind of repeatedly in cyber warfare, and I've, I go back and forth between academia, industry, international policy, I've seen this in multiple different realms of international interaction. One of the things I see is that cyber warfare is so often focused on the definition of what it is, whether or not we've got to deal with it in international law, and uh, whether something rises to a declaration of war or an act of war, that we often forget that a lot of other stuff comes from those definitions of war. Things like refugee status or war crime or collateral damage. And the thing that interests me right now is not the 17 academics and 14 military guys who are arguing about whether or not something is a, is a cyber operation under Tolin Manual 2.0 or rises to the level of an act of war. I care about the people in Denmark that lost their businesses and went hungry when Maersk was, was dealing with ships sitting in the middle of the sea with rotting food in containers. Right? The, in the middle of WannaCry in 20 uh, – in the middle of Not Petcha yeah. in 2017. Yeah. I care about the National Health Service in 2017 with WannaCry. I care about the people that didn't get their medication, that had allergic reactions from being given medications they were allergic to, but the doctors couldn't get access to those records because they'd been ransomware, been encrypted. And these are the people I care about. And maybe the answer is um, the biggest thing that's happening to me right now is – uh, as I as I look at this, as I start saying, there's nobody speaking for the people that aren't in that rarefied world of intellectual debate over the definition of cyber warfare. Instead, I want to care about and talk directly to the people who are impacted by nation state cyber attacks, but have no recourse, may don't, maybe don't even understand what's happening. Trust me, the rest of us don't either. Um, But also, I care about the definition of a cyber war crime. I care about the definition of cyber collateral damage because I'll let other people argue about the definition of cyber war. 
I think we can get to a definition of cyber war crimes and back into a definition of what the war of the future is going to look like. But that's what I care about and I want to speak to. And I was trying to figure out until yesterday morning, why don't I feel like I'm enough to, to get in this debate? And the answer was, I'm never going to have all of the Ivy League credentials and, you know, fourth generation diplomatic service family that the people at the top level of this debate are, are you know, are possessed of. The, the generals and presidents and deputy ministers, I, I'm never going to have that background. But I know what it's like to wait a table. <laughs> I know what it's like to have a flat tire and have to figure it out on the side of the road on the way to a job interview. And this is not a thing I think like and, and what if that flat tire happened? What if the, the, the place you were trying to go to, the job interview you were trying to get to, you lost the ability to find it because the car you were in uh, was compromised and it lost its GPS DB? What if the place you normally go buy food doesn't get its supplies that week because one of its suppliers was ransomware and they, they didn't get their delivery? And now how do you spend that extra four hours going out of your way to find food at a different store that you maybe had to drive to, pay for somebody to take you to? These disruptions in life are trackable to the kinds of things I want to study. And I think, um, yeah. I'm okay with the fact that I have a more colorful background and maybe that gives me the ability to tell stories in a different way to make people believe that, that, that this matters, that it's affecting them. Well, thank you so much for joining the podcast. We always try to leave um, our listeners with one or two pieces of advice or practical takeaways. Um, so in the world that we're living in today, Tara, from a cybersecurity standpoint, what would you like our listeners to know? Say yes anytime someone wants to teach you something. For the women and people of color out there in cybersecurity, ask for enough things, go for enough things, apply for enough jobs, try for enough stuff that you're failing more than you're succeeding because it means you're aiming in the right direction. It means you're aiming high enough that the things you do achieve, the things that you do succeed at are going to be extraordinary for you. Those two things. That, that's really, actually really great advice. Thank you so much, and uh, I appreciate you making the time. It was incredible, Anne. I um, it, this is basically like having lunch again. We got to do that sometime. <laughs> I look forward to talking again. It's a real pleasure. Thank you. I selected Tara as a guest because I knew it was going to be a completely different conversation than the conversation we typically have on Afternoon Cyber Tea, based on her background. But I think it's a conversation everyone needs to hear. My top takeaway from this episode is it just not, it's just, it's not easy, right? Um, when you're thinking about there, there's so many things that go into the consideration of things like encryption and the needs of law enforcement and balancing privacy and making sure we keep a secure and safe society. But there's no there. Some of these topics, you always want to compromise. There is no compromise and there is no middle ground. Thank you so much. And thanks to our audience. And join us again for the next afternoon cyber tea. This week on Uncovering Hidden Risks, we explore how you can use a cloud-native application protection platform to solve different challenges. Be sure to listen in and follow us at uncoveringhiddenrisks.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.